The scripture this week is coming to us from the book of Job, chapter 41, verses 1 through 11. And then also, as we pair Job with Advent texts, we're going to be looking at the book of Isaiah, uh, chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. Uh, in the Blue Pew Bibles, those are separated a bit. They're on pages 445 and page 575. So first from Job 41. Can you draw out Leviathan with a fishhook, or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make many pleas to you? Will he speak to you soft words? Will he make a covenant with you or take him for your servant forever? Will you play with him as, a, as with a bird, or will you put him on a leash for your girls? Will traders bargain over him? Will they divide him up among the merchants? Can you fill his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? Lay your hands on him. Remember the battle. You will not do it again. Behold, the hope of a man is false. He is laid low even at the sight of him. No one is so fierce that he dares to stir him up. Who then is he who can stand before me? Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. And from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is the word of God. Please have a seat. Before we come to this passage, let's pray together. Father in heaven, we come to this passage um, mindful of how we've been reminded so many times today that we're here because you've called us uh, together. And, and what we've just read, we confess to be your word. Um, even though uh, it was human beings um, uh, like us who wrote this, and, and they wrote it from a particular time and place uh, and context, uh, it was your spirit who inspired uh, these words, and it's your spirit that has preserved them through the centuries. It's, it's amazing to us that we have these words, that we can say are your words to your people, um, the words that um, make us a people. 
Um, Father, we long uh, to hear uh, from you uh, what you would have us hear. And, and so I pray that uh, as, we, as we look at this passage, um, that despite the fact that all of us come into this room, again, from a particular context, uh, weeks that uh, have, have ended and new weeks that are beginning today um, with different struggles, different anxieties, um, different losses and griefs that we bear. Um, different triumphs, uh, things to be excited about, things to look forward to. Um, Father, there's things that we bear uh, collectively and things that we bear individually, and it's amazing to us that your Spirit can speak uh, into each of those situations, each of those contexts, um, and work in us exactly what needs to be worked. Um, Father, that's our prayer. Our, our prayer is that in these next um, minutes, um, in this time together, uh, hearing from your word, coming to your table, that our hearts would be open, um, that you would give us um, hearts uh, that are um, turned towards you uh, and minds um, that can um, see and, and, and perceive what you want us to. Um, Father, open our eyes. Uh, give us ears to hear. We thank you even for this word here that, that speaks of one uh, who judges, not by what he sees, um, but, but, but rather, uh, Father, uh, in a way, in line uh, with the fear of you and the knowledge of you. That, that is our desire, that the fear of you would be put in us. We are thankful for that passage that we looked at months ago and that we're going to look at again next week that says that you have promised to put the fear of you, which is the beginning of wisdom, into our hearts and you've even promised to do it with all of your heart and all of your soul. That, um, that just boggles our minds to think about you doing something with all of your heart and with all of your soul and the fact that it would be to put the fear of you in us, uh, to, to shape us, to, to begin uh, that kernel of wisdom um, that would lead us to live lives um, that are blessings to other people and, and that bring glory and honor to you. Um, Father, please do these things. Um, please accomplish your purposes uh, in us through your word. Father, I pray uh, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, I, I have been extremely grateful um, to be in the book of Job with you uh, this past season and to be wrapping it up here in Advent as we are hoping for God to show up, uh, as we are remembering the centuries uh, of, of Israel waiting for God to show up, as we now are waiting uh, for him to come again, and this opportunity to look and to see uh, in the life of this man, Job, uh, this excellent, upright man, this man uh, who is wise, um, according to, to God's own, own words, and to see how God makes him wiser when he shows up. Um, looking at this um, book uh, through the lens of, of the fear of the Lord, which, again, remember our definition for what is the fear of the Lord. It is that awe-filled orientation toward God in all aspects of life that leads towards obedience. Um, and, and to look at the book of Job through the lens of the fear of the Lord um, has really given a different flavor to what the whole book is about. 
right? Um, it's obviously a book about suffering. Um, it, it, it deals with some of the deepest uh, examples of suffering um, in, in all of Scripture. But as we've, as we've said before and as we've seen, it's not simply about explaining suffering. Because in Job, if you wanted to give an explanation for his suffering, um, it would be very easy for God to do that. God could have shown up and simply said, there was a day when the sons of God presented themselves before me, right? And Satan was among them, and et cetera, et cetera, right? And just tell him what happened. He could have given him that explanation. There's actually a very simple explanation for Job's suffering. And God doesn't give him that. Um, and so we have this opportunity to ask, why is that? That What is it that God is seeking to build in Job? How is it that Job is being loved by God in the midst of his suffering, and even in the midst of this bracing conversation uh, that he has. That's, that's what we're looking at here in Advent as we look at these chapters where God shows up. Uh, and we pair it um, with texts that are, some of them a little more familiar, some of them less, um, but that speak of the coming of the Messiah, um, what we're remembering, uh, the waiting, the hoping um, at, this, at this time of the year. Last week, Bradley um, talked about how we have so far seen God say, two things uh, to Job. In, uh, in chapter 38, we saw that God says, I am your creator, and I love you. Last week, we saw that God says, I am your savior, the one who saves you, when you can't save yourself. Um, this week, we're going to see God say to Job, I am your redeemer. And I bring you peace. And we're going to see, as we look at this bringing of peace, how on the one hand, um, it, it, is, it, is, it is very much uh, the, a, a, a peace that goes beyond, that exceeds um, our common notions of what peace is like. It fits very well, we'll see, with what Jesus says to his disciples in John 14 when he says, Peace I give to you, not as the world gives, I give you a different kind of peace. Um, but we're also going to see how the promise of a redeemer, how necessary that was, um, how necessary it was that there would be one that would redeem us, that would redeem Job, that would redeem all people uh, from the sin that stands in the way of peace with God. Um, and how the peace that God brings is able to overcome the deep enmity uh, that we've placed between him and us. If we take a look at this, um, this first passage here, we're going to look at this, basically we're going to look first at, at the Job passage, Job 41, 1 to 11, um, and then shift over and, and look at Isaiah. Um, the main thing to get from the Job 41 um, passage is just the the magnitude and the depth of the peace that God has with his creation, even when he's talking about things that are big and scary. Um, look at the way that he talks about Leviathan. Now, remember last week, we asked the question, uh, or over the past, uh, past couple of weeks, we've been asking the question, when God shows up, 
is he primarily putting his power on display, right? Um, so remember, Job's friends have been saying, you know, you're just a creature, you're just a human, you can't ask for an audience uh, with God, he's so far above you. And when God shows up, it's tempting to think that all of the, everything that he says about creation, about, you know, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Um, and then this passage, can you tame Leviathan? It's tempting to think that what God is saying is, I am so much more powerful than you, how dare you question me? And as we said, the problem with that point of view is that you can go back and look at what Job says all the way through the book, and Job is not confused about how powerful God is. This is not new information for him. He knows that God is the creator. He knows that God uh, is, is far mightier uh, than, than he is. He doesn't need to be told that. Um, what's really in question for Job is not whether God is powerful, but whether he's good, uh, whether whether he's, he's loving. Um, in this passage, certainly, God's power is on display. So certainly it's the case that as God talks about um, his um, control over his relationship to Leviathan, that he can do things that we can't do. That's, that's certainly the case. But notice how here, um, as we've been seeing throughout the book of Job, when God talks about his power in and over his creation, he talks about it in the second person. He talks about himself as a God who speaks to creation. Um, and there is even a certain amount of tenderness to this. Um, look at verses 3 to 5 here, right? So he's talking about Leviathan. He says, will he make many pleas to you? Will he speak to you soft words? Will he make a covenant with you to take him for your servant forever? Will you play with him as with a bird? Or will you put him on a leash for your girls? The implication is that no, Job can't do any of that, but God can. God speaks soft words with Leviathan. God puts him on a leash like he's a plaything uh, for his children. There's, there's almost a sense where, I mean, it's like God is treating Leviathan like this cute little pet um, that he's delighted in, uh, that, that he loves. Um, now, I should back up here and say, all right, so what is this thing, right? Like, what is Leviathan after all? Um, there's been a lot of scholars that have, that have looked at, at this passage, uh, looking at Leviathan, and then the one that comes before it that talks about another great creature called Behemoth, um, and have tried to like map these onto like actual animals, right? And the problem is, is that when you look at all the different characteristics of both Behemoth and Leviathan, it's hard to find one animal that would satisfy all of these, all of these things. Um, and so it's, it's difficult to say that this is a particular creature. It's more likely that what God is doing here is saying, listen, Job, imagine the most impressive land creature you can possibly imagine, right? We're going to call that behemoth. And imagine the most terrifying, impressive sea creature that you can imagine, right? And that's, and that's Leviathan. Um, 
really, what this is doing is it's working with the language that goes all the way back to Genesis um, in talking about these monsters of the deep, um, these, these sea creatures, that all of the cultures around Israel... Um, and by the way, just to remind you, uh, Job is not in Israel. He's in the land of Uz. We're not exactly sure where that is. It's in the east. Um, but our best guess is that Job is a member of one of these ancient Near Eastern cultures that would have understood monsters of the deep, uh, sea monsters, as representing like the great chaos. Um, that has to be beaten back, uh, that, that, that has to be uh, defeated. Um, the way that God talks about playing with um, and, and existing uh, in a way that, on the one hand, keeps Leviathan in check but is, is peaceful with him, um, is not that different from the way he talks about himself as creator back in Genesis. Um, all of the other cultures around them like, would have had these stories um, in which part of creation was beating back the sea monster. Um, in, in, in at least one of these, the, you know, the chief god, the way he becomes the chief god is by doing battle with this monster named Tiamat. Um, and he grabs hold of her body and, and rips her in two and puts half of her body up in the sky, and that becomes the waters above. And then half of her body is down below, and that becomes the water, the water below. Um, which sounds a little bit like Genesis, when God separates the waters. He separates the waters above from the waters below. The difference is that in Genesis, there's no monster. There's no rival power. Um, and everything that God does, he does simply by speaking. There's also no battle. There's no violence. Um, the relationship of God to his creation is one in which he simply speaks, uh, and it is. Um, in this sense, what, what Genesis is doing and what Job is doing here um, is really, it's a very subversive thing. You know, it's saying, you know, yes, um, there's chaos out there, um, but it doesn't rival God. You know, it's, it's not as though you have God and you have chaos, you know, a sea monster, some evil power, and they're both of basically equal power, and there's any doubt about who's going to come out on top. Um, God is in such control, uh, is, is so powerful that he can just speak softly, gently um, to all of the chaos. Um, this reminded me, I remember years ago, it was when Leanne and I were dating, uh, and we were long distance at the time. Um, I was living in New York, she was, she was in California, and I remember that there was um, a time when we were on the phone and, and we were just talking about how life just felt chaotic. It just felt out of control. Um, she was in college, I was working my first job. Um, you know, we were 3,000 miles apart from each other. 
um, weren't enjoying that very much. Um, and there was just so much that just felt out of our control. We talked about it, we prayed about it. And then the next day, uh, she remembered uh, the words of a song um, that she had sung in, in church recently, and she sent them to me, and they're very well known. The words to be still my soul. And there's those lines that say, be still my soul, the waves and wind still know his voice who ruled them while he dwelt below. Because you remember there was another one who showed up who was able to exercise this same kind of control over the chaos of the sea, right? Remember this story in Mark 4 um, when Jesus is in the boat um, and a storm arises and Jesus is sleeping through the storm and the disciples wake him up and say, don't you even care that we're about to die? And he stands up and he looks at the wind and he says to the sea, peace, be still. He just says, and just stops. Doesn't have to fight with it. Just tells it to stop. And it does. And the disciples, if you remember, um, are taken aback. In fact, it says they were filled with great fear because they suddenly had an inkling of who was with them in the boat. Um, and they said, who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Um, God is Job's redeemer, and he's bringing him peace. And it is a peace that goes all the way down. Um, because God is not a God who exists in a relationship of um, uncertain conflict with the evil that's in the world, with the darkness, with the chaos. Um, he is our creator. He is our savior. And here he is our redeemer. And the peace um, that he brings uh, goes all the way down. It is, it is an ontological kind of peace. Um, when we flip over to the other passage that we looked at, we see the same thing, right? We see that part of Advent hope is hope for a kind of peace that would go all the way down, a kind of peace that would not just remove the brokenness of the world, not just remove um, the things that frighten us, uh, the things that threaten us, the things that cause us to suffer, um, but would actually restore, um, would actually bring into right relationship uh, everything uh, in the earth. Um, so let's, let's flip over here now to Isaiah 11. It's interesting, by the way, just as an aside, um, remember a couple weeks ago, we looked at Job uh, 14, and that was the one where Job was expressing his hope, right? He was talking about his hope in a God who is his creator and his redeemer. And one of the things that he said right at the beginning of Job 14, uh, or this is verse 7, he said, there's hope for a tree if it be cut down that it will sprout again and that its shoots will not cease. And then he goes on to say, yeah, but that's not how it works with people. You know, if I get cut down, you know, I don't just spring back uh, to life. Um, isn't it interesting that Isaiah 11 begins with exactly this kind of language? There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, from what looks dead, there shall come forth life, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Um, 
Isaiah goes on and says this, and you'll hear, you'll hear the connection to the fear of the Lord here, right? And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. And then the kind of peace that's described coming in verses 6 through 8 really is this ontological all the way down, all the relationships being restored kind of peace. This is, this is the kind of peace that comes with a world that really is the way it's meant to be. Um, it's the kind of peace that the Hebrew word shalom, which we translate as peace, it, it conveys so much more richness and fullness uh, and rightness with the world than our word peace, which we sometimes mean just to mean an absence of conflict, right? I mean, look at what's going on here. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, uh, the calf and the lion, the fattened calf together. It talks about children being able to play right next to snakes, you know, and not, and not be hurt. Um, so the kind of peace um, that is coming, it, it, it is just like this God. It is just like the God who is the creator. It is just like the God who has no rival whatsoever in all of creation uh, to be able to restore all of the relationships. That's what's on offer here. Um, that's what our hearts are yearning for. Um, that's what the creation itself is groaning for, all of these relationships put right. But notice that the kind of peace that comes here is not only uh, just out there in you know, the animal kingdom um, and in creation um, being restored, but it's also a peace that stems from justice. Um, 11 verse 3 continues, He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide, decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Um, and see, this is where it's really important for us to understand that God is our redeemer, that there is a redeemer. Um, because if there's not one, then we have a problem. Um, and the problem is that if we want to locate ourselves apart from Christ in this passage, um, we are the wicked. Um, we are the problem. Uh, you know, all of these all these examples of, you know, animals that fight with each other and eat each other, you know, that will, will be at peace. Um, nevertheless, none of them has rebelled against their creator. None of them has turned against him. Um, we're the only ones who could do that. We're the only ones that did uh, do that. I remember uh, years ago, I think during Advent, um, uh, some of you know Bob Sawyer, uh, who's an elder at Christ the King in, in Cambridge and has been for, I think, over 20 years. Um, and he was teaching Sunday school. Um, he's downstairs, and, and it must have been Advent because he asked them the question. He said, okay, so on Christmas, Santa brings presents to all the good children, right? All the nice children. 
And they said, yes. And he said, no, there are no good children. By the way, if you know Bob Sawyer, he's this very like soft-spoken deadpan. Um, and it's just funny to think of him like looking at like five-year-olds. <laughs> there are no good children. Um, but he was right. There are no good children. There are no good adults. Um, the Bible is serious when it says there are none righteous, that all have fallen short of the glory of God, all have sinned, all have turned away from him. Um, and, and, so, and so we're faced with a conundrum that we want the peace that would come with justice. But if we're left in our sins, we're very much on the wrong side of that equation. And the only way that peace could come would be if we were removed. So this is why it's so important to see that the peace that God brings and the peace that's promised here in this passage isn't about removing, but about restoring, about restoring us uh, to right relationship. Um, Let me ask you, why do you think it says in verse 3, he shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear? It's kind of a weird thing for it to say. You, know, you, you might think, talking about the Messiah, that he would judge by what his eyes see, but he would have clear vision, right? He would, he would, he would see rightly. Um, but it said, instead it says, he will not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. Essentially, it's saying he's going to judge instead by the fear of the Lord because his delight is in the fear of the Lord and he has this spirit of wisdom and understanding, counsel and might, knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. What's going on here? What's going on here is that the failure of the first Adam is being reversed. Adam, and all of us with him, um, are addicted to judging according to our own eyes. Um, we, are, we are devoted to defining for ourselves what is right um, and what is wrong. Um, the lie that the serpent told in the garden to Adam was precisely uh, a temptation to get Adam and Eve to do that. To say, God, in fact, is not taking care of you. He's withholding these fruit from you. You can see for yourself that they're good. You should take. And they did. That's exactly what they did. They saw that the fruit was good, and they took it. When this passage says that this shoot from the stump of Jesse is not going to judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears, but nevertheless will judge with righteousness. What it's saying is, finally, there will be one who will do what Adam was supposed to do in the first place. That finally, uh, there will be one who will not judge according to his own wisdom, but according to the fear of the Lord. Um, there will be one who, if you remember the passage last week that talked about the futility of lighting our own torches, right, and trying to, to shine our own light and find our own way. Um, when Jesus comes into the world, light coming into the darkness, even he will say that he only does what his Father says, 
that he only knows what his father tells him, that he does everything in accordance uh, with, with him. John 5, he says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is a great place to see Jesus in his full humanity. Um, Jesus, in his divinity, um, shares the same divine nature as, as the Father, because there's only one of those. Um, in his divinity, he knows all. But Jesus is fully human. And because he's fully human, like that quote last week from N.T. Wright, if you want to know what humanity looks like, look at Jesus. In his humanity, he's dependent. And he's faithful. He hears what his Father says, uh, and, and he does it. And yet, and yet, he is nevertheless the one who calms a storm with just a word. Um, he, is, he, is, he is the one uh, in whom the full power of God um, is, is revealed. But the way that he does it, the way that the power of God is revealed uh, in Christ is not with the biggest army, um, you know, in, 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 in quelling the storms of the world, in quelling the chaos of our lives. Um, he doesn't come at it with a bigger storm, you know, with a bigger force. Um, ultimately, what does he do? Ultimately, God's power is revealed in his weakness. Ultimately, God's power over death itself, the last enemy that has to be defeated, Paul says, is revealed in him submitting himself to death. Submitting himself to the death that we were supposed to die. Um, submitting himself to the separation from God, from his Father, that we were supposed to experience but, but never will because of him. In the second century, there was a theologian named Irenaeus who played a big role in figuring out what we mean when we say that God is creator. He played a big role um, in working out this notion that because God is creator of all things, he has no rival in creation. Um, because he's not a big force in the universe, but is the creator of the universe, um, nothing at all can be subject to him. Listen to what he says about this. Here, so here's a quote where he says this, but there's a detail I want you to hear. He says, Neither the nature of any created thing nor the weakness of the flesh can prevail against the will of God. For God is not subject to created things, but created things to God, and all things yield obedience to his will. The detail that I want you to hear is that along the way of saying that nothing in creation could overcome God, that God isn't subject to anything, he included the weakness of our flesh. I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel like, well, I, feel, <laughs> I was going to say I feel like Kafka, not because I feel like Kafka in general, but because of a particular quote. Kafka said once, there's plenty of hope. There's plenty of hope in the world, just not for me. 
Kafka was able to look at the world and say, I can see how all of this can work out. There's plenty of hope. But for me, I'm too far gone. I think a lot of us can identify with that, that we can imagine how others could be changed, how others could be saved. But we've just seen the same patterns in ourselves for so long, the same weakness for so long, that we think this is too much. Implicitly, we imagine here's something that God can't overcome. To Irenaeus shows wonderful pastoral wisdom in saying, God isn't subject to anything in creation. And that doesn't just mean that he speaks softly and tenderly and playfully to Leviathan. It means that even the weakness of your flesh cannot overcome his love for you, can't thwart his purposes for you. There is hope, even for you. I don't know if you heard, I'm going to close with this, in our, in our call to confession, um, Dan talked about the fact that as we come towards confession, we do so in the reality where the penalty for our sin already has been paid. It's already been dealt with. Um, and there are those little words um, in what we read from 1 John where it says um, that if we confess our sins, then God is faithful and just to forgive our sins. If Christ has already paid the penalty for our sins, if he has already submitted himself to our death, to our separation, in order to give us his life and his intimacy, his presence with the Father that we were made for. It means God would literally be unjust not to forgive those who confess their sins. It would be unjust of him to ask for the penalty to be paid again. It's done. It's already done. Um, that's why we're able to come to this meal. That's the only reason. Um, There is a hope here that exceeds our imagination. And as Jesus said, there is a peace here that the world doesn't know anything about. It's different from the removal of conflict. It's different from the squashing of our enemies. Um, there is a peace here that goes all the way down and that restores all things and all relationships to the way they're meant to be. We come to this table to enjoy a foretaste of that in its fullness. Let's pray together before we do.